listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello, I'm Robin Whitaker. I'm Howard Wallace. And joining us today for Pentecost 17, we have Rachel Kronberger. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks, Robin. It's good to be back. Good to have you here this weekend next. Um, Rachel's a minister of the Uniting Church who works in a city church in the heart of Melbourne here. And we have an ambitious program today. <laughs> We're going to attempt to discuss the Lamentations, both Lamentations 1, 1 to 6, and the alternate for the psalm, which is three nineteen to 26. We'll look at Psalm 137, because it's a really important and well-known psalm in our tradition. We'll have a brief look at 2 Timothy 1, 1 to 14, because it's the start of a number of weeks of 2 Timothy, and Luke 17, 5 to 10 in that order. So, Howard, what do we need to know about Lamentations? Well, this is the only week where Lamentations occurs in the lectionary. Um, It's plonked in the middle of the readings from Jeremiah and in Christian sort of circles has always been associated with Jeremiah for a a few reasons, Um, partly because Jeremiah himself laments over the destruction of Jerusalem. This Mm -hmm. is in about 587 or just after 587 BC, Um, as does, of course, the Book of Lamentations. Uh, And also there's a a reference in 2 Chronicles chapter 35 to... um, Jeremiah lamenting the death of King Josiah, which would Mm. have been not that long before this time. Lamentations is a short book, five chapters, poetry. Mm -hmm. It is in a particular poetic form. It's what we call acrostics. In other words, every verse of a particular chapter, each of the five chapters, um, begins with the next letter of the alphabet, sort of like an A, B, C sequence going on. Um, there are a couple of little variations on that, but but clearly it's been either used as a, a learning process for scholars or um, a way of constructing. Mm. Or perhaps remembering. Yes, that, yeah. too, yes. Um, each of the five chapters talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Mm. They all focus on that. And they use a number of different images. And the one that's relevant for, for chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, is that of a woman who has been widowed. Mm. A woman of royal heritage who now is in servitude. Um, And it's a pretty sort of disastrous picture of her situation. But also perhaps a very (coughs) everyday image, right? You know, people would know who widows are. Um, They could imagine when a woman's status Mm. in the ancient world Mm. is so closely tied to her husband's income Mm. she's vulnerable losing a husband can yeah Mm. yeah and throughout the hebrew scriptures the care of the widow yes is a crucial um refrain all the way through Mm. orphans and widows are um are repeatedly named as the vulnerable people in the community yes so i mean it's a it's a very vivid picture that's that's drawn in Mm. this first chapter of the book and quite in in its own way even though the the subject matter is is not pretty by any means. It's, it's quite beautiful, the, the mm. poetry and the way that it works. But there's one message that comes through in these first six verses, apart from the, the picture that's drawn of the woman, that is Jerusalem, and that is that the suffering is because God is punishing Jerusalem, the Judeans, mm. for their sins. And that's a pretty harsh sort of statement in that quest. I think we need to keep it in context, um, 
in the larger context of the Old Testament because while in, in a number of circles uh, the exile is seen as punishment for Israel's past sins and particularly the activities of some of the kings immediately before that, um, that's not the only view that goes on of, of exile and other prophets like Ezekiel or sec- parts of, sec- of Isaiah and other writers sort of portray this as a time of we don't quite know what's going to happen and the anticipation that Israel could come through this, um, not in sim- a simple return to life as it used to be, but in a terms of a change of, of life, a new way of worshipping God, a new way of living in the world. I think it's a um, there's a lot of uh, a kind of theodicy at work here mm. about um, you know can we allow God the possibility of bringing light out of this darkness yes, is yes, um, yeah. is really key, but also faced with this trauma as a community, the options it seems theologically were either God is not as powerful as the Babylonian yes, God yes. who has mm. led the success of the Babylonian Empire. Or God is, um, God is punishing us, or God is active somehow yes, in well, this, or al- at least mm. allowing it to happen. So it was of more comfort to think that God was present, but somehow um, involved in what was yes. going on, than that God was um, absent or weak. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, if you're going to maintain some faith in in the God of your ancestors, you have to explain the present circumstance in That's some right. way. Mm. Yeah, so it's making meaning, making sense out of yes. deep trauma mm. and, mm. Uh, you know, suffering and yeah. grief. And yeah. as Liz Bice reminded us earlier in this mm. um, sequence of um, prophetic writings, there's um, something about poetry which allows a community to speak of trauma, to tell the mm. story, and, and the acrostic means that the community, you know, there is a capacity for the community to learn and remember the story mm. after yes. the events mm. so that this is not something to be forgotten. It's not something no. that's, it's something that was endured but is not, um, if the acrostic says to me it's not something that's shameful even though a lot of the language of the poetry represents a kind of shaming in the, um, in the suffering. Mm. It's not for the later community that remembers this story and tell, sings a song mm. about it. It's not inherently shameful well, because... Yeah. I mean, they are laments and we've got laments in Jeremiah but we have an awful lot of laments in the Psalms too. In fact, mm. they're the, the largest group of Psalms that we find There's there. nearly so, a third of the Psalms are yeah, laments. So can, can we just stop and say what yep. laments are? Like w- well, what does this word kind of mean? <laughs> what is a lament? Well, to try and put it in simple terms, I think it's an expression of of hurt mm-hmm. and sometimes an asking of a, a question of why that hurt has come mm. or seeking to explain the, mm. that that hurt and that suffering. Yeah. So a contemporary moment for us here in um, Melbourne, there's a truth-telling commission um, for First Nations people here in Melbourne mm. and... There's um, profound lamentation going on in the community as as stories are told of the suffering of First Nations people, and I think mm. that's a really yes. yeah. it's it's go. We don't know yet how it will emerge, but um, learning from other countries' experience of this, it, it will become for us a text of lamentation. Yeah. Mm. So this, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just trying to think. Um, you know, both liturgically and and for preachers, you might want to pick up. Mm. 
lamentations this week, how how we talk about this with our people in helpful ways that this is this is, you know, this is the language of faith as much as anything else, but that perhaps allows the truth telling, the expression of anguish. I think I, part of the lament, as I see, I mean, we're, we're familiar with confession, at least I hope we are, <laughs> um, within the church on a weekly basis. Yep. But I think there's a place also for what I would call lament. I mean, it's an expression of sometimes of things that I have not deliberately caused what's happening and yet I am caught up in certain events within the world or things have happened which we have no power over um, and to put that out before God um, and to be sorry for it in in the ways you can I think is partly an expression of that. Mm. And I think it's um, a point of faithfulness for preachers Mm. to speak openly Mm. about the possibility of human suffering. I think um, people are often drawn into the life of communal faith in the church because of an mm. experience of of suffering or struggle, and yet we speak of it relatively little in our um, in our liturgical life and in our preaching. And so, learning a language of faith associated with suffering, is, I think, is a really important part of our um, our work as preachers, mm. and particularly because um, there is. There is light in the darkness in this story, and um, we were just saying before we came on air that um, the uh, kind of canticle that's set as an alternate to the psalm in chapter three of Lamentations is one of the best known Bible verses across the church: mm. "The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases." Mm. And yet we say that or sing that without first sitting in the pain of well, without the, lament. the context. That's right, <laughs> and it's in the context of the, of the midst of lamentation mm. this thing so there's a, a sense also of of um embracing patience to see where god is going to lead us through these times mm. yes these yep. sufferings yeah there's a lovely um a writer called adele bestavros who's um it was quoted as an epigraph in mm. another book called patience with god writes, um, patience with others is love, patience with self is hope, patience with God is faith. Mm. Mm, that's a nice way to put it. You can play with that. Yes. 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 Are there other sure. images or, or things you want to point out in the Lamentations, either in the Chapter 1 or the, the Chapter 3, um, uh, before we move to the Psalm? Nothing in particular. I think. I, think, mm. I think there's a lot more power in mm. the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases when it is set in context and yeah. shared in context and yes. taught in context. But we ought not to... It's not a glib um, <laughs> affirmation. It's no. A, um, no, it comes it's out a of very anguish. serious Yep. And we pain. shouldn't forget the last verse in, in that uh, chapter 3, quotation verse 26. Mm-hmm. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Indeed. Yeah, waiting. Of, yes. Ooh, yes. Well, let's turn now to Psalm 137. A well-known psalm yes. might recall a certain song by the rivers yes. of Babylon. We sat down and yep. ends with this very famous dashing the baby's heads against the rocks, which yes. often we're quite uncomfortable mm. with. In this. fact, the old lectionary used to leave those last few verses out. Yeah, I know. Because they thought they were just too, well, I guess unchristian. I thought they, mm, too they were. Violent. Um, and I do think if we're going to read texts like I know some traditions read all of the readings mm. regardless of what's preached on, and other traditions like the Uniting Church, we we tend to 
not necessarily read all four. We'll read a couple. And I do tend to think when we have these violent images, if we're going to read them, we should talk about them yes. would yes. be my yes. ethic. Yeah. We've got to address. So either leave out the verses or preach about them. Yes. yes. Give give yes. them some context. So yes. what's, again, where well, – I mean, yeah. to say first up that the psalm is again in the setting of Jeremiah and Lamentations. It's probably written just after – the exile of <clears throat> of people to to Babylon. Um, they're clearly um, settled down in Babylon and being taunted by their their captors mm. um, in terms of you know singing the songs, being cheery and and things like that. Uh, but their expression or their main question is, how can we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? Now, immediately that relates to. The suffering that's going on. I mean, it's a mm. time for tears and silence um, and anguish. Mm. Uh, it's not a time for joyful praise, um, singing yep. songs, presumably songs of praise, and that. But there's something hidden in that that verse as well. Um, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This is actually something that Israel are going to learn over the next centuries, mm. because many of those people who went into exile did not go back to Jerusalem after about three generations of being mm. in a foreign land. And even those who did go back did not always have a good time. It wasn't quite what they expected when they got there. But it's such a huge <coughs> learning <coughs> curve for the community here in terms of their faith yes, because yes. Um, with the establishment of Jerusalem as the centre and the temple and um, the profound experience mm. of God's presence um, in a place they're then displaced and mm. found God to be present yes. in the other place, even in the place of, of suffering mm. and, and tears. God was there with them. And that's an immense revelation that, that changes the course of um, mm. of the mm. faith of ancient Israel. Yes, it's not quite, with, as you sort of see it within, even within contemporary Judaism, it's not quite a, a thing that that God has intended this thing to be something to replace what was there, um, there's still a longing to go back. Of course, um, yeah. But knowing God is with you there mm. is Im- important mm. in this context. Um, the last few verses, do we want to? <laughs> yes, let, let's. Well, maybe before you do, on the song stuff, one of the yep. things that came to my mind is that there's a, a few scholars I read um, in America who, who have looked at, um, say, Bible traditions in African-American slave songs. Mm. And and there's something there that I mean it's a slightly different dynamic, but that that the gospel tradition comes out of being in a foreign land, forcibly yes. removed, yeah. um, and the Christian faith was the faith of the oppressors. So it's slightly different tradition because here it's about retaining one's mm. own faith, but somehow you know Paul's theology in this Christian music starts to develop a whole gospel tradition that becomes a way of singing and you know mm. so um, just encouraging people to think about other ways where song songs become songs of protest and hope as well as the memory of tradition yeah. all that kind of stuff like you you could play a lot with what mm. you've just referred yeah, to Howard yeah. in the in the singing of the song well, one, of, one of the stories that sort of oh things that keep in my mind when I was in America um when 9-11 happened back in 2001, I yeah. got there a week after that yeah, and well. I went to <clears throat> the lo- a local church um, and afterwards people were still talking about the preaching of the week before, which had been 
straight up. Straight, yeah, because it was literally and Psalm 137 was the psalm oh, for that week. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there might be listeners in America who can yeah, actually remember they, that oh, yes, combination. They, well, people were still talking about the, the mm. preachers, good preacher, the preacher's sermon on that psalm that day. Yeah. And, uh, it's incredibly powerful in that context. And, and I mean, that might take <coughs> us to the last verse because <coughs> I think there's something very human yes. in the desire for revenge, <coughs> right? We're in pain. Mm. Yes. And we want to go dash your baby's heads against the rocks. Well, that's one of the <laughs> things to note, I think. I mean, there's a couple of things that could be said. Um, there's reference to the Edomites. We're not quite sure what that is about. But okay. uh, in a couple of things, in the little book of Obadiah, they're also mentioned. And it seems as though the Edomites, which who were sort of neighbours of Jerusalem, just on the eastern side of the, mm-hmm. the Dead Sea, um, they may have been complicit in sort of the attack on Jerusalem. Okay. But that's just a, a theory. Um, the other thing, of course, is that, you know, these are dark sayings that we all have from time to time or occasionally. Um, and we often sort of try and put them aside, but here they're expressed. But mm. the context, I think, is is important. I mean, they're expressed in the context of prayer and as as Walter Brueggemann and other writers have said for quite some time, you know, that is where they are left and expressed. They're not carried out in relation mm. to to one's neighbours. These are all. things that we confide yes. in God. Even yes. in public mm. we confide in this God. This is the way our, I feel. Yeah, you know? that's right. And it's also interesting mm. with the Psalms because they are songs, mm. poems. They're not directives. They're not um, no. instructional texts. Yeah. They're not yeah. theological statements yep. or commandments. Yeah. They're songs and poems and so... They're, they're cries of the heart and, yes, yeah. you know, I think um, it's part of learning to be brave and and speak truthfully to God mm-hmm. about what's, yes. what's heavy on our hearts. I mean, mm. I think it's actually important for Christians especially to, to recognise that not all scripture is instruction for good. Yes. No, that's right. That, that it's there sometimes um, for us to, well, argue against or, or ask questions about or to get us thinking in some sort of context. Yeah, and to say um, perhaps, you know, if you were to preach on this, ask people what have they experienced that has stirred up this kind of anger Mm. in them, this kind of um, challenge and struggle. Mm. So before we move on Mm -hmm. to the New Testament, are there any last sort of thoughts for preachers? I mean, it seems like pairing the psalm with what you both just said would work really well with, Exploring a theme of lament and mm-hmm. perhaps yes, how yeah, even yeah. we pray to God, the, yeah, the yeah. permission to express our true um, Yeah, well, One of the things that I've discovered in preaching from these texts is that although congregations are often really familiar with the words of the songs, words of the psalm, words of the prophets, there, ha- there isn't actually a Bible reading that succinctly tells the story of the exile and people are often not actually familiar with the historical Mm, sequence. mm. I think that's really helpful for people to be able to picture the community Mm. whose um, response we read in this um, because because it's not always a well-known story. No, that's true. I think the other thing that I'd want to sort of say if we were preaching on this is it raises the question of how we value our experiences or how we evaluate Mm. our experiences, I think, and... There is in the Lamentations, but, um, well, there's encouragement in the psalm to express what we're feeling. 
I think in Lamentations there is some encouragement to to sit with what we're feeling mm. and to see where we're going to move with that with God, knowing that God is with us through that experience. I mean, there's something Easterish about this yes. <laughs> sitting with and the waiting and yeah. waiting. Yes. Yeah. Well, next up, we'll turn to the Gospel to Luke seventeen five to ten. If you'd like to know more about By the Well or any of our hosts, please visit bythewell.com.au. So here in Luke, where um, the passage is tricky, which might be an incentive to to preach on uh, lament and uh, Psalm 137 this week, but um, we're at the end. In chapter 16, we've had some key stories of Jesus critiquing the Jewish leaders perhaps um, debunking some common understandings of the time that if you were wealthy, you were somehow blessed by God in that rich man and Lazarus story, um, pointing to a deeper ethic of righteousness and and also at God's reversal of such things. And in chapter 17, we seem to turn to a bit of a critique of the disciples now. Uh, Just before our passage is the warning um, that they are, you know, not to cause stumbling for the little ones, woe to anyone who does this, so that they they too must be sort of on guard for their own um, sinfulness, really. And that leads us into verse 5, where they then say to Jesus, increase our faith, this kind of demand, which at first seems like a reasonable yes, question. Yes, it does. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> what do you... It seems like the... Um, Jesus is concerned about the question and its motives. Mm. That there's a mm. um, yes. Well, you know, if I was going to go here, I wouldn't start from there. Kind yes, of a, a question. Yeah, mm. I mean, the reply of Jesus suggests it's the wrong request. Mm. I think, um, and this is a nerdy Greek grammar thing, but it's it's called a contrary to fact conditional, which is in Jesus' reply, the grammar in Greek makes it clear that it's like if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, so a small grain, a mustard grain, um, but you don't is what's implied in the way the Greek is constructed. So you don't even have this little bit of faith, but if you had even this little bit of faith, you'd be able to do this, quite frankly, astonishing and strange thing of uprooting yeah. Yeah. a mulberry tree. Um, there's even a certain violence in that image that's, I think, challenging. But it, it, it makes me wonder whether the point is not about amounts of faith, but you either have it or you don't. Mm. So they're kind of pursuing the wrong thing. I don't know yes, what Yes, you... and I think they're also putting faith into a category that's based on sort of those who have more and those who have less, those who have power over those who mm, don't like have power. It's a credential or yes, a, um, yes, a point of status yes, to yes, have, have more faith. Mm. And it's one of those things in the that we know in the Christian community traditionally, in especially in um, piety-focused traditions, that there is a privilege for some people people to have uh, be perceived to have a great faith mm. because they have a lot of time available to them. Mm. You know, women typically who um, have a lot of domestic labour and parenting responsibilities and perhaps working in paid work as well and all of that are not um, necessarily, you know, there are situations in which they haven't been perceived to be as of great faith because um, 
they're not doing Bible not, study every day or no, some, that's right. something yeah, yeah. tangible. Yep. But it also raises for me the question, I mean, often people will say, if only I had enough faith, then something yeah. may have been different. And it's really raising question about what the nature of their, their faith is and how we relate with mm. God in that context. And faith almost becomes a work in that sense yes. of faith. It becomes works. a bargain chip, mm. money that you can pay more for and, of course, yes. you'll get more back. have you know? more or less of... Mm. Um, mm. Yes. I mean, I find the very word faith itself tricky, this pistis word. I sometimes don't like translating it as faith because it has a mm. deep sense of trust. Yes. So if you have yes. trust in God, yes. and I mean, I, I guess you can have degrees of trust. <laughs> I mm. don't know what's helpful, or belief. But I think here it's, and particularly in the little bit that follows this story, um, or this saying, it's not about, faith here is not about a cognitive ascent, right? It's not mm. about a set of beliefs, or saying the right thing, or even thinking the right thing. It's kind of a posture, an orientation, yes. isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Which I think we see in the rest of this. I mean, it is a strange cluster of it's verses. Very strange. Yeah. With the, mm. the you know, it maybe shows us a little bit about Luke's socio-historic location that he's assuming that, you know, this is the way you talk to a slave. Now, mm. Historically, scholars who work on historical Jesus stuff will say that those first called by Jesus probably were not wealthy enough to have slaves, right? Mm. Um, but Luke is presenting a maybe to his congregation or um, whoever he's writing to a, what is a normative kind of you've got a slave and this is the yeah, way you treat yeah, them. Sure. But also they're not so wealthy they have multiple slaves. They have the one slave doing everything. So, mm. you know, mm. we get a little window into the world behind the text. It's certainly something people would have understood quite clearly. And I think it's interesting yeah. the way that the writer sort of does. I mean, first you've got that conditional clause that you mentioned before mm. that upsets already if they're listening carefully Yes, what they're questions about yeah but then you got reference to slaves i mean why is he talking about slaves and then he ends up by saying you are really slaves in this yeah context or like slaves yeah, in would fact we, worthless slaves mm. would we call this a parable robin well i don't know i mean luke tell, luke does have jesus telling stories that he doesn't explicitly label parables sure. so it, it has i don't know i mean it's yeah i'd have to think about that would you because I think it's really important if um, – I think probably not. Mm. And the reason is that there's a temptation with parables to um, to draw quick analogies about who's who yes. in the parable. Yes. And I think this would be a really dangerous um, mm. couple of verses Move. to try and do that work of saying yeah. Yeah. who in this story is God and which one's Jesus and mm. which one's me, mm. um, which is, you know – um, caricaturing of the mm. process but um i think it's sitting with the complexity and ambiguity in this and um and not trying to make quick analogies not trying to um make immediate sense of it but to wrestle with it yeah and i think sometimes um you know there's that lovely uh idea where willeman talks about in his um preaching chapter in pastor where he says <laughs> That uh, of the texts available on the day, um, the one that uh, exercises you the most, the, mm -hmm. <laughs> whether yes. for good or ill, is yeah. the is the one mm -hmm. to preach from. Because in the wrestling with the text, um, you will have yeah. an encounter with God, and therefore yes. your congregation yeah. will have an encounter with God. I love that idea. Yeah. And this is certainly <clears throat> one that oh, yeah. will um, <laughs> exercise most preachers. I think. Yeah, because I mean, 
we often want to build people up and we do want to preach good news, but, mm. I mean, this is one of those hard sayings of Jesus to the disciples, which we've had in Luke. People think Luke is this lovely, you know, because Jesus has concern for the poor that somehow Jesus is just a nice guy We've in Luke, but mm. this is the gospel where he's already told them, unless you sell your possessions and leave your family, you can't follow me. Like, there's yeah, hard words we, We've already had hating our families and ha- exactly. all, all of that. So. Yeah. The Jeremiah reading for next week addresses precisely that yeah. the issue of, of building people up versus versus yeah and honesty. And but yeah, <clears throat> but I mean, he's telling them, you know, yeah. when you've done what I've told you to do, you shouldn't actually even been asking for thanks. You should say, "I'm a worthless slave. I've done mm. I've done what mm. I needed to do." Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's I think that would be challenging for a lot of people. I think people get that in their own households a little bit. You know, yeah. when. Um, Somebody does the dishes and then waits to be thanked for it, or yes, somebody yes, hangs yes, out the yes, washing yes, and, and a wants downplay to, of reward. In <laughs> wants to be congratulated for um, for yes. hanging out the washing. You know, yeah. it's just um, well, that's just what we do. You know, yeah. So, the, I mean, I think that is challenging because I'm a big fan of thanking people, <laughs> but the, the I think by putting these two passages together, which in some ways don't seem to necessarily have a lot to do with each other. There is something about the way faith is expressed in the way Jesus talks to the disciples about being slaves that is about faith is expressed in the daily tasks, whether it's tending at table or plowing the fields, which are the you know culturally appropriate analogies he uses. Um, that you know again, it's that faith is not about a cognitive thing or being, or acts of piety, because that's what he's been critiquing for a couple of chapters now. Um, it is about those daily tasks. Uh, and, I mean, that we don't have a lot of time to discuss Second Timothy, but there Paul will talk, who, Paul, I'm using inverted commas here, um, the author, um, talks about the faith of your grandmother and your mother and, and how is that known. It's known in probably acts of labour and love. and yes. yeah. yeah. And it's also there's something about this mustard seed Faith that is um, that takes me back to the Lamentations three mm-hmm. song, and um, God's mercies being new every morning. And there's something um, like that in this for me. God's mercies are new every morning, and our trust is re- renewed with each new day. And that's our basic posture towards God. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.